0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded for Christoginia Saturdays for Saturday, February 13th, 2021. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, February 10th, and once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us with part 27 of our series of presentations of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. And here we shall continue to discuss particular passages in the epistles of Paul, where certain terms are mistranslated or misunderstood, and adversely affect the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the New Testament. As we have explained, because of the nature and purpose of Paul's epistles, There are many more of these than there are in all of the other New Testament writings. Once again, while there are many more mistranslations in Paul than what we shall present here, we will only focus on those which concern the concept of nation, race, and the scope and purpose of the gospel. Hello, Truthreads. Thank you for joining us once again. Praise Yahweh.
1: Hey Bill, praise Yahweh. Thanks, family. So yeah, we was um going on about, you know, how saint is often mistranslated and how the modern teachings always try to uh warp what it really means. And and here we're getting on to anointed. And um I know that every denomination teaches a different heresy, so so it's difficult to um hone in on the the main heresy, but generally from what I understand, they always try and obscure and cover this up and make it as though it's talking about christ never about the israelites or if not it's uh, spiritually anointed that if you believe in christ just believe, you know, any any race, any people, any non-Israelite can just believe, and they become anointed. And that's certainly not the case. It's a racial distinction. What it means with saint and anointed us, the Israelites, and the modern Christians who are the Israelites. W- would that be right, Bill?
0: Well, well, yes, that's absolutely right. This, even though, as you brought up in our pre-program banter, that word "anointed" can have a certain signification in relation to Christ and and um his blood covering our sins. This word anointed is a, a um thread, it describes a phenomenon all the way back to the time of the Exodus and the anointing of the children of Israel. They're being baptized, as Paul put it, in in the pillar of of fire and smoke, leading them through the water of the Red Sea, of the parted sea in the Exodus. And they were anointed at Mount Sinai when they received the law and agreed to keep it and became the peculiar people of God. They became the chosen people. He chose them before they agreed and he chose them in spite of the sins that he knew they were going to commit. But despite, in spite of that, he had continued, Yahweh God had continued throughout Scripture to consider them his anointed people, his chosen people. And they were called the anointed many times in the Old Testament. So we're going to discuss that here today. Some of these words, when we discuss the general terms which are mistranslated throughout the scriptures, before we started talking about specific passages in, in the Gospels, we, we had a list of general terms that um, are like Gentiles and ethnos, which is nation, and Judean and Jew, which are not synonymous. But these terms, saint and anointed, that they really don't come into play until the book of Acts and Paul's epistles. The word saint is used several times in the book of Acts, but mostly in Paul's epistles, where it appears in scripture in in the New Testament. So. I'm I'm not going to say that I really didn't think about these words when we were talking about general mistranslations, but the word saint only appears in Matthew, saints, one time. And it doesn't appear in Mark, Luke, and John. The word saints in the plural appears in Acts four times. Now, the word saint only appears one time in all of the New Testament, and that's in in the singular, and that's in Philippians chapter 4, where the word saints in the plural appears many times in Paul's epistles and in the Revelation. It appears outside of that, it's only twice in Jude so we we see that these words it, it saints appears probably 50 times in paul's epistles at least so maybe 40 and anyway these words are, are important much more important in relation to paul's epistles than they are in re, or the revelation than they are in relation to the gospel so it was probably better to leave discussions of the word saint and the word Christos, which, is, which means anointed, for this explanation of, of the way they're used in Paul's epistles. And we can't imagine that Paul used these terms in a way that were different from the Old Testament use. They're certainly not. When Paul quotes the Old Testament containing these words over and over again and alludes to events that happened in the Old Testament, he's using the words in the same way they were used in the Old Testament. So we didn't list these words immediately for that reason. In our last presentation in relation to Paul's epistles, we discussed the word saint. So here, especially before Galatians chapter 3, it's necessary to discuss the word Christos. And Christos is an adjective, and it does not always refer to Christ, even where it appears in scripture. Now, there's actually a 3,300 word essay explaining this at Christagenia. And here I'm not going to present the entire essay, but I'm going to attempt a summary. And I've actually added a couple of new perspectives and new material to the things that I presented in that essay. But it's important to understand this word Christos especially here in Galatians chapter 3, but also in many other places in Paul's epistles, how he had usually actually used this word. I don't know if you have anything to say to that.
1: Yeah, Paul continuously connects the Israelites to all these places he's going, right? And, And that's the whole point that he says, anointed then and anointed now. Whether he's going to Galatians, Romans, Corinthians, whatever, that that's always what he's trying to do, uh, you know, awaken them and re- make them realize that they are the Israelites, right?
0: Absolutely. And in a lot of places, it's absolutely clear that he is doing that. So we're going to discuss that this term anointed as it appears in Paul's epistles here only in. Galatians chapter 3, and in the epistles to the Romans and the Corinthians. But over the next couple of discussions, where it appears in Paul's other epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Hebrews, we will mention this again, that this meaning of the term Christos, merely as anointed, and the fact that it doesn't always describe Christ. It usually does in the context of what is being spoken, but not always. Sometimes it cannot describe Christ. It must be referring to the children of Israel collectively and in in the context where it appears. So we'll discuss those things over the next few weeks, but right now we'll offer a general discussion of, of this word Christus or Christos but it should be probably pronounced Christos. Wherever the King James Version and later English translators encountered this word, whether they did it by habitual repetition or through plain ignorance, they translated the word as Christ, whether it is an adjective or used as a substantive, as a noun, where it is usually accompanied by a definite article. Take the adjective and, and, and accompany with accompany it with a definite article and it's not just anointed like somebody anointed you or that which would be a verb or that you are anointed which would be an adjective but if you take the definite article now we have a noun the anointed or the anointed one which is christ from the perspective of the new testament and that's a translation of the hebrew word messiah which is is the anointed anointed by god i believe (coughs) anointed of yahweh it's been a while since i've looked up the definition for messiah but christos translates messiah roughly so the King James translators always translated this word as Christ, and, and that is also reflected in most later translations and also in the majority of Bible dictionaries. The verb Creo, which is to anoint, that's the verb form of Christos, the adjective. Creo is found in Luke chapter four, in Acts chapters and 10 in hebrews chapter 1 and and the verb is always pertaining to christ but everywhere else in the new testament in those passages but everywhere else in the new testament we see the same verb used in that same manner of the children of israel and that one place i'm sorry it's only one place where it's used of the children of israel and that's in second corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 it's the only time that creo is used where it doesn't refer to christ and paul uses this verb creo and we read from second corinthians now he which establishes us with you in christ and has anointed us, that verb creo, is God. So there Paul clearly expressed the concept that Christians are anointed. But as we have often noted in this series of presentations, the Corinthians were descendants of the ancient Israelites. So we have to ask ourselves, when did that anointing take place? The Apostle John used a related noun, Charisma, where he was also speaking of Christians. But rather than writing anointing, the King James Version translated the word as unction in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, where we read, but you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now, perhaps that anointing was a reference to the anointing of the Holy Spirit and that's fine, but that word unction should have been translated as anointing, or may have been translated as anointing. A little further on in that epistle, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, it is translated, as we would have it, as anointing on two occasions, and it says, but the anointing you have received of him abides in you. And you need not that any man teaches you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. So we see that this word charisma means anointing, and it's used, John used it of Christians, and we see that Paul had referred to the anointing that Christians had received but the use of these words in the same manner pertaining to the ancient children of Israel are found in the greek septuagint and their their hebrew counterparts are also in the masoretic text and therefore the meaning is evident in the king james version in first samuel chapter 2 verses 10 and 35 and and in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and in several of the Psalms, and in Habakkuk in chapter 3. In the King James Version, we can add Lamentations 4.20 to that list, but that verse differs from the Septuagint, where the Septuagint doesn't contain the word. The Septuagint version of Lamentations does not contain the word for anointed. But I'm going to cite some of those examples. In fact, I'm going to cite most of those examples, not all of them. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 in verse 35. And I will raise me up a faithful priest. And these are the words of Yahweh. That shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk. Before mine anointed forever. And the anointed there in that context must refer to the children of Israel collectively. In Psalm chapter 20. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. And then in Psalm 28. Yahweh is their strength. And he is the saving strength of his anointed. Then in Psalm 84, Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. And then in Psalm 89, Speaking collectively of the children of Israel, But thou hast cast off and abhorred. Thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. In Psalm 105 concerning the promises to Isaac and Jacob, it goes on to say, speaking of the people collectively, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man do them wrong. Yeah, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, touch not mine anointed, referring to the collective descendants of Abraham and the people of Israel and do my prophets no harm. And then in Psalm chapter one, Psalm 132 in verse 17, there will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. Finally, in Habakkuk chapter three, from a a prayer to Yahweh, All of Habakkuk chapter 3 is a prayer. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head of the house out of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. And the first two phrases there are a parallelism, as the people are collectively the anointed. And that is also clear from the other examples which we have cited. And, and, and anyone is free to take the references and go look at the context of those passages. It's, the anointed is a reference to the people collectively. So while Yahshua Christ, Jesus Christos, the Greek term, Jesus Christos, is literally anointed Yahshua, it is usually written, Yahshua Christ. And in that manner, Christ becomes a title for Yahshua. Therefore, Ho Christos is always the Christ in the King James Version, as it usually refers to Yahshua Christ. But the primary assertion here is that Ho Christos also often refers to the children of Israel as a group. And this is especially apparent in certain contexts in these letters of Paul that the children of Israel with Yahshua Christ as their head are the anointed as a group is explained by Paul in one reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, and then in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, it is explained by Paul and it is alluded to elsewhere. In those passages, Paul uses the term Christos in reference to the people of Christ as the collective body of Christ. So Christos refers to the people of Christ and not to Yahshua Christ alone. There's a difference there. Although the phrase, ho Christos, is singular, such singular nouns are often used to describe a collection of individuals in Hebrew or Greek. Examples are found in words such as sperma, which is seed or offspring, and in the singular, it describes all of one's descendants as a group. But examples are often also found in most of the places which we have just cited where the term anointed is used in the Old Testament. They are all singular. With the exception, actually, two one and a half exceptions. Let me put it that way. One exception is in Psalm one hundred five fifteen, and we have just read that. And, and in verse fifteen, it says, "Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm." And in that spot, the word for anointed actually appears in the plural. In both Greek and in the corresponding Hebrew term, where it's plural. In Habakkuk chapter 3, it is plural in Greek, but it's singular in Hebrew. So we see that at least two Septuagint translators, or two different verses of the Septuagint, in those two different versions, when they wrote the Hebrew into Greek, It was in one instance plural in the first place, but in the other instance, the translator in Habakkuk made it plural in Greek, understanding in Hebrew that the singular referred to a collection of people, and he expressed it in the plural in Greek for one reason or another, when it could have been expressed in the singular in Greek and still referred to a collection of people, a particular group of people. So with this background, I'm going to offer a short list of passages from the New Testament where we would assert that Christos refers to the body of the children of Israel. Christian or not, and not to Christ alone. And for that reason, these citations are going to be taken from the Christogenian New Testament rather than from the King James Version.
1: And um, all the verses that you mentioned... Just previously, it shows you that um, only Yahweh can anoint someone or or a race. Nobody can just anoint themselves. Right. And only the children of Israel were ever anointed.
0: Absolutely. You you can't just uh, I, I mean, I don't care how much oil you have in the world. If you're not a descendant of the children of Israel, you can't anoint yourself to be one of the children of Israel. Christ told His apostles, "You have not chosen me; I have chosen you." Paul of Tarsus spoke about, and and that this is surely something that we should speak about in a later proof. Paul, in in his epistle to the Romans, Paul mentioned those who are predestined, that those he had chosen beforehand and predestined. So. If you're not one of those people predestined in the Old Testament, you can't be a Christian in the eyes of God in the New Testament. He also said those whom whom he foreknew, speaking of those same people, if you are not one of those whom he foreknew, then you can't be a Christian in in, in the New Testament. Because you were not foreknown. When did he foreknow those people? He must have foreknown them in the Old Testament. He must have predestined them in the Old Testament. Because when he came in the New Testament, he said, I have come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So... That foreknowledge and that predestination, in, in, the, um, in the Reformation, there was a, a heretic named Arminius, who dwelt on this foreknowledge in Romans chapter 8, and attempted to define it for himself. And at the same time, there were debates between followers of Arminius and followers of another heretic named Calvin who dwelt on Paul's use of the word predestination and attempted to define it for himself. So what we have is in in Protestantism is we had two sects, Arminianism and Calvinism, and Calvinism won out. It got the popular vote of the people, I gather, or, or of fellow clerics. And The ideas of Calvin prevailed, but they were both wrong because they both only accepted half and tried to build their doctrines on half of what Paul had said in that passage in Romans chapter eight. The truth is that you must be foreknown and predestined and that that foreknowledge and that predestination has to be according to the word of God, not according to what you think they mean they can only refer to the children of Israel who were clearly foreknown and predestined in the words of the Old Testament prophets they are the anointed as well where the word appears to describe a collective group so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 Paul wrote but i wish for you to acknowledge that of every man the head is the anointed And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of the anointed is Yahweh. And there, it's the community that Paul is referring to as the anointed. The community of Israelite Christians. Because Christ is not saying, I'm sorry, Paul is not saying that Jesus Christ, who is God, that Yahweh is the head of God. Yahweh and Christ are one. He's not the head of himself. He's the head of his body, which are the people of Israel as Christians, as Paul explained elsewhere. So one place he explains that is in the next chapter, in, and the context really isn't broken, except for the chapter numbers, which should not break the context. And he's describing that body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body being one are one body. And he's referring to a physical human body. And he's, re- he's making an analogy where by that he's describing Christ as the head, and the many members as the people of the body of Christ, so Paul says, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also the anointed. In other words, that the collective children of Israel as Christians are the anointed. Christ is the head. Christ the anointed one. Yahweh God incarnate, is the head of that body. And that's how we should view ourselves, as members of that body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. So that's what Paul was teaching. But where he used that term anointed, he wasn't referring to Christ alone. He was referring to the collective body of Christ. We see this again in Ephesians chapter 4. And he has given the ambassadors and the interpreters of prophecy, and those who deliver the good message or gospel, and the shepherds, teachers, towards the restoration of the saints, restoration of the saints. This is not the building of a new, different body of saints. This is the restoration of the Old Testament saints that Paul is discussing or or describing. These are people who were already saints, who needed to be restored. People who were not saints before don't need to be restored. But in the Old Testament, as we demonstrated, the children of Israel were the body of the saints. Even in their apostasy, they were saints. They needed to be restored Because there were still saints in their apostasy. They needed to be restored. And if you weren't one of those saints in apostasy, then you can't be a saint. You were never described as a saint in the Old Testament. And Paul is referring to Old Testament saints, not to these artificially pious Catholic people that the Pope thinks he could make a saint. The Pope can't make a saint. No man can make a saint. God made the saints. Towards the restoration of the saints, those Old Testament saints, continuing with our citation of Ephesians, for the work of ministering for building of the body of the anointed, the collective body of the children of Israel, are those saints. It's they. It's not Christ that needs to be built. Paul can't build the body of Yeshua Christ himself, he's talking about Ho Christos, the anointed, the collective body of the saints. As they become Christian, we build the body of Christ as the children of Israel turn to Christ. That builds the body of Christ, which is the people, as he explained in First Corinthians chapter 12. They are the anointed, and they are the same as he says here in Ephesians, as those Old Testament saints. Until we, for the building of the body of the anointed, until we, who we, the body of the anointed, the saints that need to be restored, until we would attain to the unity of the faith and of the acknowledgement of the Son of Yahweh at man perfected at the measure of the stature of the fullness of the anointed. We can't improve the stature of Yahshua Christ. Only he could do that. We can only improve the stature of the fullness of the body of Christ, his people, in order that we would be infants no longer. So the fullness of the anointed is the we being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men. Now he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church. In villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things for he who is the head. Now, in this context, ho Christos applies to Christ. It describes Christ. For he who is the head, the Christ, and from whom all the body, those Ho Christos anointed body of Christ, the people of Christ, from whom all the body is being joined together and is being reconciled, reconciled. You can only reconcile something that needed to be restored. Those Old Testament saints, the children of Israel, needed to be restored. Somebody who had never had a relationship with Yahweh God did not need to be restored and is being reconciled through every stroke of assistance according to the operation of every single part in proportion. The growth of the body, what body? The body created from those Old Testament saints that needed to be restored and are being reconciled. The growth of the body creates itself into a building in love.
1: So um, Christ picked his body before time, right? When he created the world, we were all predestined and chosen to be his body. He He picked his own body. Nobody can just choose to be the body of Christ. And it's amazing, the, the heresies are all these churches the popes uh, bishops and, and even the protestant uh, churches that they rob us of this and and you know you have to go to the church and and then that makes you the body of christ when it's the complete other way around and it's such a shame that people don't realize that that we're predestined to be part of the body of christ he chose us right
0: right because he chose our fathers if we're israel is if we are israelites he chose our fathers in the Old Testament, and he has not changed. And that these Roman Catholics and these Jews, that they love to twist up Paul of Tarsus. And a lot of them, if you read the the modern commentators, not so much the classical commentators like Adam Clark or Matthew Henry, I, I don't even know what half of them say, but I've seen a lot of modern commentators on the internet who claim that Jesus only came for Israel, and this is how they explain away the statements of Christ throughout the gospel. Jesus only came for Israel, but Paul changed that when he got mad at the Jews because they wouldn't believe him, and Paul made a new religion by taking Jesus to the Gentiles. And that is absolute bullshit. That is a huge lie. Paul never took christianity to anybody but the lost sheep of the house of israel for whom christ came he states it so many times explicitly in romans in first corinthians second corinthians here and and here in ephesians chapter four where you can only if you want a full understanding of what paul said concerning the body of christ and and its members in first Corinthians chapter 12 and in first Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 you have to read it along with Ephesians chapter 4 and and read them both together Paul isn't saying one thing in Ephesians and another thing in first Corinthians no he's explaining the same thing in two different ways in Ephesians chapter t- in 4 he hadn't spoken to the Ephesians in, in quite the same manner as he spoke in his much longer epistle to the Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians wasn't even Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. There was an older one that's lost. And that older one that's lost, we call 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians because it's the clearly the first of the two surviving epistles of Paul to the Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he makes a statement about a letter that he had written to them in the past. So the 1 Corinthians that we have should probably really be 2 Corinthians. And the 2 Corinthians that we have should be 3 Corinthians. But the original 1 Corinthians, if indeed that was the first letter, because he mentioned an earlier letter it it wasn't necessarily the first letter that letter is it is lost and and it's never going to be recovered i, I mean short of some miracle because it's been lost evidently for 1900 years at least and and probably longer that that's in first corinthians chapter 5 verse 9 i wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators so that epistle would be the real first corinthians right but we don't have it so we paul wrote to the corinthians at great length and he only wrote to the ephesians that this as far as history knows right as far as we know from scripture he wrote to the Ephesians in, in this one epistle from his imprisonment in Rome. So it's obvious that he had to say different things to the Corinthians than he had said to the Ephesians. So where he describes the body of Christ in Corinth and in Ephesians, it helps us to have both of these epistles because he described things a little differently, probably out of necessity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he already told them that they were Israelites, that their fathers had been under the cloud and in the sea and were anointed in the cloud and the sea with Moses and all of that. So here had been baptized, I'm sorry, in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. There is a slight difference. So so here in Ephesians, he said the same thing about the body of Christ and said it in slightly different ways, but he specifically mentioned restoration and reconciliation to the Ephesians. And, and for those terms to make any sense whatsoever, Paul must have known that these Ephesians, whom he was writing, were also Israelites that were alienated from God. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Paul knew who he was going to. He wasn't just making this stuff up. We can't assume that Paul was just some blathering evangelical idiot just making stuff up that sounded cool. We can't imagine that. He had to have purpose behind these words. He had to use this word restoration for a particular purpose and reconciliation or reconciled for a particular purpose. And he used them because he understood Christian identity. He understood that these people were the scattered 12 tribes abroad. That's a long digression, probably necessary. But that's why we'll probably mention Ephesians 4 a just in passing as we get to that epistle and the other mistranslations in that epistle. However, that had to be mentioned here because of our mention of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that these two passages are basically speaking of the same thing. And the word, the use of that word anointed in both of them, for that reason, refers to the body of the people, not specifically to Christ, Examining the subjects of the passage proves that the interpretation that we have is correct from the context of the passage. So examining 1 Corinthians 11 in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16, we, as I just read, we see that the phrase, ho Christos, at 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 3 should indeed be the anointed as a reference to the children of Israel as a group. For Yahshua Christ, being the same as Yahweh God, is not described by Paul here as being merely the head of himself. Rather, Paul is describing Yahweh God as the head of his anointed people. A walk through Paul's epistles, examining certain places where the phrase ho Christos appears shall certainly make it manifest, make manifest the veracity of these assertions. So here we shall examine some places, or, or I should say some other places, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, where, where this is more readily evident, as, as we have already discussed other mistranslations and misinterpretations in those epistles, but we're going to go back to speak about Two passages in Romans chapter 9 and in 1st Corinthians chapter 1 where it is also evident that ho Christos refers to the body of the people and not always to Christ I don't know if you have anything to add
1: well as what you said earlier that uh, Paul just went and made his own religion but uh, Yahweh or Christ that he actually chose Paul himself so that that would make uh, once again Yahweh a failure if he chose Paul and Paul just went and invented this other religion, right? Absolutely. But, but what what all this shows that nothing's changed. The the Old Testament to the New, same people, same religion, right? Is is all the same. And and also um what you said where some people think Paul invented a new religion that that goes into all the Paul bashers, right? That if it wasn't for Paul, Europe would still be uh. Pagan, basically, we wouldn't have this so-called Jewish religion. Uh, so it's, it's all just a lie, basically, what they teach.
0: Well, well, right, and then there's other Paul bashers who despise Paul because they accept the Jewish lie that Paul created a new religion, and and that they our Christian identity on, on the basis of the Gospels and the other epistles and the Revelation and, and the prophets, but they reject Paul because they accept that Jewish lie. Paul wasn't creating a new religion at all, and if it weren't for Paul, they themselves would never have heard of Christ. That there is um testimony that Peter, for example, was... Crucified in Rome. Now, that testimony comes 300 years after Peter's death. Maybe 275 years after Peter's death. There's no proof of it. There there is no documented evidence of Peter's death in Rome for the first 200 and something years of Christianity. So if you want to accept that he was crucified in Rome or not, is immaterial. Peter wrote his first epistle from Babylon. And in the context of Peter's first epistle, and his second epistle, was, which was written very shortly thereafter, he was writing from Babylon, not from Rome. That There are um, Roman Catholic apologists who tried to claim that Peter used Babylon as a code word for Rome. But that attributes to Peter knowledge that, first, Peter didn't necessarily have. And second, those same Catholics will deny that Babylon is Rome when you talk about mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. So they want it both ways, right? They, they contradict themselves from one epistle to the Revelation, The truth is that Peter was in Babylon because Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. And there were still, at that time, many of the descendants of Judah who maintained the circumcision who were still living in that area. But the Edomites had also infiltrated and infested that that area. And, And we see... Evidence of that in, in Strabo and in Herodotus, where, where he talks about the Syrians of Kola Syria, which is hollow Syria, which is actually a stretch of land from Lebanon that, that stretches all the way to, to Babylonia. So that there is documented historical evidence or documentable historical evidence of why Peter was in Babylon, because he was the apostle to the circumcision. Now, if he was taken to Rome and crucified late in his life, that's fine. But we don't know that from documented evidence. If he was crucified in Babylon, that's fine too. Perhaps the Romans crucified him. But we don't know that. So that there's really no documents that, that tell us one way or another. So Paul was exclusively the, the bearer of Christianity to Europe, who is documented. Now, it's evident that Rome was made Christian, that there were Christian, Romans, particular Romans, I'm sorry, were, became Christian before Paul wrote his epistle to the, Rome, to the Romans or before he ever visited Rome. Because when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, it was 57 AD, as we've already discussed. And there's a lot of evidence supporting this. And I discussed it at great length in my commentary on the book of Acts, especially in chapter 20. And Paul was about to go to Jerusalem for a feast where he was arrested and sent to Rome two years later in bonds. So, Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote his epistle to the Romans, yet, if you read Romans chapter 16, there were many churches of Romans there. So, it wasn't Paul that originally brought Christianity to Rome, but it wasn't Peter either, because Peter was in Antioch, and then he went to Babylon, and there's no record of Peter ever being in Rome before Paul wrote his epistle, and no mention of Peter in that epistle. Priscilla and Aquila were Christians in Rome, even though they were not from Rome, that they were from Anatolia. The Christians were actually thrown out of Rome, and, and that's, re, that's recorded in the book of Acts. And I believe it was um, during the reign of Claudius, it was like 41 AD, Long before Paul had ever gone to Europe, paul's um, Paul's first journeys to Greece happened are uh, recorded in Acts chapter 14, and we can be confident that that is after 43 a d that is after the time that Herod Agrippa I had died in Acts chapter 12 Herod Agrippa 1 died in 43 AD so Paul's first missionary journeys must have been after that his first ones to Greece he he had already been back to Tarsus where where Barnabas had to go get him in order to to work with him in in Greece right so it's it's a long story but there's a lot of um background historical information and context that that's required in order to truly understand paul's epistles and why paul is legitimate because paul is even though christianity is even as far as britain in the first century without paul it's still paul's christianity which that early Celtic Christian church had known the best and had loved and had followed. They were following Paul's Christianity in their documents up to the 5th century or or in their documents as early as the 5th century AD, there's mention of Pauline Christianity in their documents, in spite of the fact that they developed entirely separate from the church at Rome. So how Christians could despise Paul when Paul's epistles and the people that Paul had taught Christianity to had, had been the glue that stuck Christianity to Europe. They, Paul was the vehicle for the bringing of the gospel and the understanding of the gospel to the lost sheep. And there should be no doubt about that by any sort of Christian. Now, the Jews can bash Paul all they want. What the Jews say should be immaterial to any Christian. I
1: was just going to say, yeah, it's clear clear that Paul was the one who could explain it properly to people and put it all into perspective. Um, As you just said, even if... um, You know, there were people from Britain in Rome that, as some people believe, and they took Christianity back with them. It must have been Paul that explained it to them so they had a true understanding and and brought it back with them,
0: right? Right. Paul was the primary vehicle for that, and he's the only one we know. We don't know who brought Christianity to Rome before Paul, except that Priscilla and and Aquila were there before Paul. Otherwise, we have no idea who had brought, brought Christianity to, um, to Rome. It, it's in um, Acts chapter 18. And that this may not have been 41. This may have been later than 41. I forget the exact date. It may have been 51 or so. And, and, and it says in Acts chapter 18, after these things departed Paul from Athens and came to Corinth. And, and I believe this is probably later, it's probably about 51 AD, and, and found a certain Judean named Aquila, born in Pontus, which is on the southern coast of the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because the Claudius had commanded all Judeans to depart from Rome. Now, the Judeans in Rome in the time of Claudius were starting riots against the Christians in Rome because they saw Christianity as a Judean heresy. So Claudius issued a decree that all the Judeans had to leave Rome. And, and that reveals to me that Claudius really wasn't sure of the source of the dispute among the Judeans. But he just got a, got rid of them all to get rid of the dispute, to stop the rioting. Okay, enough of that digression. These two passages we're going to discuss where this term "anointed" it is used. That these are important to understand in the correct context. In Romans chapter nine, verses one through five, I speak the truth among the anointed, not necessarily in Christ. And, and there it could be translated either way. It wouldn't bother me. But I chose to translate it that way because that elucidates or, or further amplifies the actual meaning of the phrase in the subsequent verses. I speak the truth among the anointed this is the Christogenian New Testament. I lie not, my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed, and I will comment on this shortly, accursed from the anointed, the collected body of the people, for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh or according to the flesh those who are israelites so right there this is 25 years after the resurrection paul is defining israelites as his kinsmen in regards to the flesh or his kinsmen according to the flesh not mere believers That replacement theology that the church is the new Israel is a lie. The new Israel is the restoration of the old Israel. They're one and the same. The new Israel is the reconciliation of the old Israel. They're one and the same. But in the Christian era, They're not to be called Israel, they're to be called the body of Christ, the anointed, the ecclesia of Christ, which is the assembly. And and it's not to be replaced, that concept is not to be replaced with any church of mere believers. That's a lie. That's the most significant lie of the, the last 2,000 years. I prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed, the body of Christ, for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites. And then he says that to those Israelites belong the following, whose is the position of sons, which is adoption in the King James. So even if you want to translate it as adoption, it belongs to the Israelites who are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. Whose are the fathers? In other words, you have to be a descendant of the fathers in order to be a Christian and Israelite or one of Paul's kinsmen. And of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh? The King James Version had to add words to that to translate that as Christ so that it would still make sense that they had to add a word that doesn't appear in in the original Greek. That word is came. It's a verb. And Paul, it cannot be assumed that Paul meant to use that verb or meant to mean that. That can't be assumed at all because it's not what he said. Of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh? That. Of whom that reflects a genitive case there, and if it was the object of any verb, it would be in the accusative case, it wouldn't be in the genitive case. That pronoun of whom, if it was for whom, then it would be in the dative case if Christ came for somebody for whom so that there's grammatical problems with the king james version translation but the truth is that they misinterpreted that phrase anointed ho christos and they added a verb that doesn't belong there and tried to make it the object of a verb that that doesn't exist which is just dishonest and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh or according to the flesh. So being of the anointed, like being one of the restored and reconciled saints, is according to the flesh. Like being one of the brethren of Paul is according to the flesh, not according to some mere belief. You can't say that you believe what I believe and somehow become my brother when you're not my brother in the first place. Being blessed over all, blessed of Yahweh for the ages, truly, or amen. And and in verse 1, Paul explained that he speaks the truth among the anointed. His mission was to the nations of Israel. Those nations actually descended from the ancient Israelites, as he explained in various places throughout his letters. In Romans chapter 8, verse 39, just a couple of lines prior to verse 2 here romans eight thirty nine is the last verse of Romans eight, I believe, and here we have two verses later, or maybe three, maybe it 's the next to last i 'm not even I, I'm, I'm not even positive, so let me look romans eight thirty nine is the last verse, so two verses later. you know paul didn 't start a new subject on a different day some man 1500 years later put these verse divisions in here and these chapter divisions the context is not broken from Romans 839 it's not broken at all in Romans 839 paul explained that nothing could separate us from the love of yahweh which is in christ Yahshua, our prince and therefore here where he wished himself accursed from the anointed instead of his brethren right in place of his brethren, according to the flesh, in Palestine, he must have referred to the people of Israel collectively and not to Christ himself, because he just said that nothing could separate us from Christ. Paul is offering himself in place of his brethren. If he could do such a thing to be cursed in their place, Paul knew that those Israelites who continued to disbelieve Christ, that they were going to become accursed. He knew that. How did Paul know that the Jews, the Judeans at the time, when Paul is writing in 57 AD, how did Paul know that all those white Israelites, his brethren in Judea, how did he know that they were going to be accursed? For them to be accursed, Judaism would have to become accursed. For them to be accursed, they would have to eventually end up being race mixed. For them to be accursed. And that's exactly what happened to them. And Paul knew it ahead of time. So I wouldn't mess with Paul, right? <laughs> when in, in Romans chapter 16, he told the Romans... In 57 AD, that the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. And 13 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. (laughs) I wouldn't mess with Paul. That's two prophecies that came perfectly true. Just in two passages of the epistle to the Romans.
1: Paul knew his stuff, right?
0: Paul, if you actually study his epistles in the historical context in which they were written, Paul definitely knew his stuff. He absolutely was inspired by God, and he ab- absolutely understood the scriptures of the Old Testament in in relation to the scattered 12 tribes of Israel, who happened to become already by his time that the... um major element among the nations of europe there were ionians and 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 there were um the etruscans who descended from the lydians who were the lud of genesis chapter 10 they weren't israelites they were adamic descendants of noah but they weren't israelites there were other people in europe in in various places that were descended from the other adamic tribes that weren't israelites but Abraham was to inherit the nations, and Israelites in their migrations became the dominant factors in, in the dominant populations in every European nation. So, Paul definitely knew his stuff. And here, Paul is offering himself in place of his brethren who were the anointed he's not offering himself in in place of Christ he can't be saying that he wants to be accursed from Christ because he just said two verses before this that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ so to read this in context and to understand the context of what Paul is saying without forcing Paul to contradict himself, then in that later passage of, of Romans chapter nine, not verse one, but I think this is verse um, verse three, it has to say, "I would wish myself accursed from the anointed." It can't be a reference. Merely to Christ. At verses 4 and 5, Paul explains that the anointed are Israelites and are of the fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to which people alone, only to them belong all of the covenants and promises of Israel. So at the same time, Paul's including the Romans in that. So the Romans must also be Israelites. They have to be. So it's our obligation to examine history to see how that is possible. And we've presented the evidence here already, earlier in these discussions. The next passage, in in light of this word, Christos, meaning anointed collectively of the body of the children of Israel, Is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. And Paul wrote, Now I encourage you, brethren. This is again the once again the Christogenian New Testament, by the name of Prince Our Prince or Lord, Yahshua Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And there may not be divisions among you. And that's important to understand the context: divisions among you when we get a little further on in the passage, but that you are disciplined in the same mind and in the same purpose. It has been disclosed to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe, and Chloe, or actually Chloe's in Greek, she must have been one of the, um, the people of her house must have been notable among the Christians at Corinth and, and were complaining to Paul they probably wrote to Paul because when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, that epistle, he was actually in Ephesus at that time. He spent three years in Ephesus and that's when he wrote this epistle towards the end of that three years. So, it has been disclosed to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe, that there is contention among you Now I say this, that each of you say, So I am of Paul, but I am of Apollos, but I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. In other words, there was division and contention among the various people at the assembly of Corinth. And some of them wanted to believe one thing and claim that they were following Paul, and another wanted to believe another thing and claim they were following apollos. People do that today. They do the same damn thing today. Oh, I'm I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't believe the Old Testament. Well, you're a heretic. Oh, I I reject Paul. I I believe James and Peter. You're a heretic. What you have to do is understand that all of these men had the same mission. They all agreed with each other, and you have to reconcile their words in the context. The literary and historical context in which they were written, you have to reconcile them. And once you understand that, they do reconcile. And all of your perceived differences dissolve. And you're not in the truth if you're following one and not another. So this was going on in Corinth in the first century. So Paul asks... Have and, and Christ wasn't divided, right? Had the anointed been divided? It's referring to the body of people that there are no divisions among you, as he said in verse 10. Had the anointed been divided? Has Paul been crucified on your behalf or have you been immersed or baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is not asking whether Joshua Christ had somehow been divided. In verse 10, Paul tells the assembly that there should not be divisions among them. In verse 12, he states that they have chosen, they have each chosen favorites from among the apostles and in turn claim to be followers of those favorites. Then in verse 13, he asks, had the anointed been divided? The anointed referring to the body of the children of Israel, the anointed people that they shouldn't be divided. Warning against such disunity is subsequently a major theme in this letter to the Corinthians, and, and we see that in chapters 3, 4, and 12, especially. Not only, but especially.
1: So, once Even is... in the CI, we have all these divisions, don't we, where Someone will disagree, like like we're pork, just a silly example, and they'll go look for someone who said, "Oh, he's he says it's okay, so I'll go follow him." (laughs) Absolutely. Instead of uh, you know, sticking with CIA or so so we still have the same problems today. It happens all the time, and and even
0: men, all men whether they think they're teachers or otherwise, should be following Christ, should be seeking what the word of God actually says and not the word of any man. If any man says anything that's contrary to the whole word of God, then he is wrong and nobody should be following him that pretends to be a Christian. And if he can't be corrected, then he must be rejected. If he won't accept corruption, correction, then then he has to be kicked to the curb. And and that's the Christian duty. So once it is recognized that Paul uses the phrase Ho Christos, the anointed, to refer not only to Yahshua Christ, but to the children of Israel as a whole. Many difficult and little understood passages may be looked at in an entirely new light. Now, there are other examples of this, which we have omitted, as they are not as consequential to our understanding of the subject. But there are three or four other places where we will continue to raise this issue as we proceed through Paul's epistles. And here we are going to start with Galatians. With Galatians chapter three. Denominational Christians insist that the seed of the woman in Genesis three fifteen is a reference to Christ Himself and Christ alone. Then, in spite of the context of the passage and the balance of Scripture, they corral whosoever believeth into the covenant in spite of of the explicit language of the covenant itself, and, and I should say that they attempt to corral whosoever believeth into the covenant, because whatever man says and whatever man does doesn't matter when it comes to what God wants. But few passages of Scripture are misinterpreted and mistranslated in order to support those heresies, as these passages, which we are about to discuss in Galatians chapters three and four. And we're not even going to get through all of this this week. It's the balance of Galatians chapter three and four are going to have to wait until our next presentation that the um, rest of this presentation is only going to concern a few verses from Galatians chapter three. But before we begin, we shall see, and we have to establish this. We have to establish this every time. We shall see that the seed of the woman is a collective seed, the descendants of the woman, and more specifically, the descendants of the forefathers who were assured the covenants and promises of God. First, there is Revelation chapter 12 where the woman with the 12 stars, which are evidently, which evidently represent, I should say, the 12 tribes of Israel. That woman is depicted as having been taken into the wilderness after the birth of the Christ child. Then we read, And a serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood of the dragon, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth, or angry, with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ." So there we see that the seed that the dragon makes war with is not Christ alone. It's the people, the collective body of the people who are descended from that woman. That woman doesn't really represent Eve, although it could on another level of interpretation. It really represents the bride of Yahweh, God, which is the children of Israel. We would assert that this is the seed of the woman, those of her race, the white Israelites, which have always had and which, ever since the birth of the Christ child, have tried to keep the commandments of God. Paul also defines the seed of the promises in Romans chapter 9, where he compared Jacob and Esau as the reason why not all of those. In Israel, were of Israel. And he said, neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac, not in Jesus, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. If you're not a descendant of Isaac, you are not the seed of Abraham, period. That is... They which are the children of the flesh, now we're going to narrow it down even further, as Paul does in Romans chapter 9. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, what promise? The promise to Isaac. The promise to Abraham that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That promise. Paul's not talking about any other promise except the promise which he just mentioned. So he says, for this is the word of promise. He defines the promise. We cannot take anybody else as the seed of the promise except what the scripture says is the seed of the promise. The seed of the promise isn't merely believers. That's a bait and switch where, where the Jew gets you into the store for a $300 TV, big screen, eight-foot TV, and, and you find that it's out of stock. It's always out of stock, but he has a $600 five-foot screen TV to sell you, and he tries to sell you on that one. Because he only lured you into the store with something that he never had in stock in the first place. That's called a bait and switch. That's an old Jewish advertising gimmick. Well, that's what the Roman Catholic Church does. They think that God is making a bait and switch, making a promise to one man that his descendants will be blessed, and and then trying when they get to the New Testament, when you get into the store, that they're going to switch it with believers. And that's bullshit they're no better than jewish hucksters jewish merchants
1: it's stealing isn't it
0: yeah they that that they're, they're like the merchants of that that i saw in downtown manhattan on canal street when i was a kid outside of all their junk stores these jews trying to rope you in to buy something <sighs> for this is the word of promise at this time will i come and sarah shall have a son and not only this but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So Paul is explaining that these are the promises that generate the seed. Has to be their descendants. It can't be anybody who wants to be a Christian. For the children being not yet born, speaking of that promise to Rebecca, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, that election of the children of Jacob. Paul's saying that it stands. He's not saying that it failed, that now the Christianity is open for mere believers. He's writing this epistle in 57 AD, which can be established from Scripture and from the book of Acts. He's not writing it before he went to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 14. He's writing it in 57 AD in Acts chapter 20. So the the way these churches interpret Paul, they just make stuff up to suit their beliefs. They don't really teach what Paul said. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, meaning by one promise, by our father Isaac. Now, the King James wrote even there to have it make sense, but Paul was referring to the promise made to Rebecca, not to the husband of Rebecca. For the children being not yet born, neither have having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, because the Edomites were in Israel at the time, and the Edomites were even the high priests at the time Paul was writing, and the Edomites were claiming that they were the people of God based on being circumcised and conducting rituals, But that's not true. Paul said, not of works, but of him that calls. He's describing the situation in Judea. This is still Romans chapter 9, where he was worried only about his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he said that not everybody in Israel is of Israel. And it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, But Esau have I hated. And the Edomites were subject to the Israelites for many hundreds of years during the period of the kingdom from the time of David down through the time of the Assyrians. Now it is not that Jacob was not a child of the flesh, Jacob was a child of the flesh, referring to the children of Abraham, which are Ishmael. And, and the sons of Keturah, such as Midian and Havilah, and Esau and Jacob, they were all sons of the flesh, but of them all, only Jacob was the son of the promise. So the children of that promise are counted for the seed, according to what Paul just taught us in Romans chapter 9. In that manner, the seed of the woman that woman in Revelation chapter 12, are the children of Israel who have turned to Christ. And the seed of the promise are the same children of Israel who came of the promises to Abraham, Sarah, and Rebekah. In Romans chapter 4, Paul attested that the promise is sure to all of the seed. Speaking of those same nations of the children of Israel. In Luke chapter 1, we see, in part, the purpose of Christ as it was announced by Mary. He is hoping, or helped, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Then, later in that chapter, in part, as it was announced by Zacharias, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read in part that Christ had took on him the seed of Abraham. In the Christoginian New Testament, the verb is translated more fully. Christ took upon himself the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him, to be made like unto his brethren. Paul defining brethren as kinsmen according to the flesh. In Romans chapter 9 and in First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul described his kinsmen and the Israel of which he spoke as being according to the flesh and not according to the mere beliefs or professions of men. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul once again cited the promise which he explained in Romans chapter 9, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The seed of the promise would not be called in Christ. The seed of the promise was already called in Isaac, and it never changed. So for that reason... Saints had to be restored, and the anointed had to be reconciled, as Paul explained in Ephesians. How could anybody assume that there's any other context in Paul's writings? There is no other context in Paul's writings, except that the New Testament is entirely Coherent and in the context of the Old Testament relationship which God had with the children of Israel and promises which God made to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no other context in Paul's epistles. There's no other possible interpretation of Paul's epistles. In truth, Christ only called that seed which was already called predestined, foreknown, so that it would return to him. With that background, then we can begin to examine the common mistranslations and misunderstandings, which are found in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. I don't know if you have anything to add, but I had to establish that the children of Israel are the seed of the promise. There's no other seed. Before we yeah, discuss, yeah. Well, once creation, Yahweh made that three.
1: covenant, he couldn't just change it later on, right? If if you once you've made a deal, that then it is stuck. You know, Yahweh couldn't get out of it, and that's what he'd done deliberately. He wanted to put himself uh, in a deal where he would have to save Israel, right? That's that's the whole point. And and you know, imagine Abraham in heaven at the end of time. Psst. And all these Gentiles arrive and say, "Oh yeah, you know, Yahweh changed His mind. Uh, we're now Your seed." You'd think, "What the hell? What was the point in the in the in the first place if Yahweh was just going to change it later, anyways?" Right?
0: Absolutely, it's ridiculous to think that. It's ridiculous not only in the context of the Old Testament and especially the prophets to think that. It's more ridiculous in in relation to what Paul actually said about restoration of the saints and reconciliation of the anointed and he says this consistently and and he explains where the seed is called it's called an isaac why was he saying that because it sounded cool What seed was called in Isaac, the descendants of Jacob, because Jacob inherited the promises to Abraham as Isaac is specifically, and I think we get to this a little further on, as Isaac is specifically recorded as telling Jacob in Genesis chapter, I think it's 28. It might be 29 off the top of my head. I'll get it right later when I make that citation once again, (laughs) because I actually looked it up, but that's okay. So first, and and in order, what we're really going to discuss here Galatians 3.15 through 3.18, but in order to lay some of the groundwork of context necessary to understand that, we really have to start from Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. So... No passage of scripture could just be understood on its face for what it says. And, and that's another thing that Judeo-Christians and all those denominations, which are in that divided body of the anointed, that, that's something that they don't understand. You can't take one passage of scripture out of its context and just say anything you want about it and, and make it apply to anything you want. When the context in which that word is written says that it applies to something different, you can't change the context of Scripture and apply it to whatever or to whosoever. Because even where Paul said whosoever, he only meant whosoever of a certain people. Those people that needed to be restored and reconciled. You can't make Paul contradict himself from one chapter to another. You can't do that to any writer and, and be honest. Otherwise, like you said, that's stealing. So I'll read from Galatians 3 verses 6 through 8 from the King James Version. The context pertains to whether Christians should continue to practice The rituals of the law, which Paul called the works of the law, and that's an entirely different subject, but that can also be proven. I also have papers at Christagenia which establish that. Paul called the rituals of the law the works of the law, which are written in the books of Moses. So, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of the faith, The same are the children of Abraham. Now, Paul's not saying that if you believe you're one of the children of Abraham. He's not saying that. That is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, and that's not what Paul is saying. The word is ethnos, and it's plural, and it means nations. Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So where is there a promise that God would justify heathens, or that God would justify any other non-Israel nations? Such a promise is found nowhere in the Old Testament. You won't find it. But in Isaiah chapter 45, we read, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. So which nations is Paul referring to here? The nations of heathens, or the nations of Israel, which descended from Abraham in fulfillment of those promises? Yet here he wrote that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So in order to find the nations to which Paul had referred, we must first see what Abraham had believed. It's that simple. You can't so take Bill, that. Is he, I'm
1: sorry. So I was just going to say where it says, indeed shall all the nations be blessed. It That's the dispersion, right? Where the Israelites subjugated and conquered or the, well, mostly in Europe, the Adamic nations, and for that, they grew to be even greater nations, right?
0: Absolutely, and that could be proven from the context. Foreseeing that God would justify the nations through faith. What faith? Because Abraham believed God. What did Abraham believe? And this is Galatians chapter 3. But just like I would assert you can't really understand what Paul's saying fully in First Corinthians chapter 12 without also understanding Ephesians chapter 4, we have the same dynamic here that what Paul said in Romans chapter 4 clarifies his intended, the intended meaning of his words in Galatians chapter 3. Paul answers what Abraham believed in Romans chapter 4, where he wrote, and I'm only going to quote it in part from verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's from verse 13. I'm going to skip to verse 16. But first, let me say, if it wasn't Abraham's actual seed, that would inherit the promises which Yahweh had made, which God had made to Abraham, if it wasn't his actual physical seed, then why the hell should Paul mention Abraham at all if it's just anybody who believes? Abraham becomes immaterial, and what Abraham believes becomes immaterial because that's not what Abraham believed. Abraham believed his seed would become many nations, would inherit the earth, would inherit the world, would inherit the other nations, and that his seed would receive those blessings. So, going back to Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, where Paul describes what Abraham believed. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace, not by works, but by favor. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, meaning all the seed of Abraham. Not to that only which is of the law, meaning not to those people, only to those people who keep the law and the rituals, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. Now, the faith of Abraham is not what you believe, and it's not what I believe. It's what Abraham believed. That's what the faith of Abraham is. You can't just make up what the faith of Abraham is. The, the, the narrative in Genesis is very clear that Yahweh told Abraham that a seed would come from his loins, and even Ishmael, although Ishmael came from his loins, wasn't good enough. And Sarah was 99 years old, or 90 years old, I'm sorry, Abraham was 99, Sarah was 90, she was 90 years old, and Sarah didn't believe she could get pregnant. Nobody believed that a 90-year-old woman could get pregnant, but Yahweh told Abraham that Sarah, and told Sarah as well, that she would have a son. The promises that produced the seed that Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 9, and the miracle of the birth of Isaac is the proof of the lengths to which Yahweh would go to keep his word, that the seed of Abraham must come from his loins. Abraham, before that happened, he tried to substitute his steward. I think his name was Eleazar, I, I don't quite remember, but he tried to say, what about my steward? His steward was of the same race, was of the same kindred that Abraham brought with him from his homeland in Haran. And Abraham said, what about him? He'll be my heir. And Yahweh God said, no, and, and virtually told Abraham, you cannot replace your seed with another man. That, so how does the church try to do it? If Abraham himself could not do it. So in spite of Abraham's attempt to to do that, being fleshly attempts, and and we could understand that from a 99-year-old man, Yahweh said, no, your seed is going to come from your loins, period. And Isaac was born. Isaac was born and Paul insists in Romans chapter 9 that the seed of the promise is the seed of Isaac. And we have Jacob and Esau, and Paul explains that Esau is vessels of destruction and going to be destroyed, but that Jacob is the vessel of mercy. The Israelites, who physically came from Abraham's loins through that promise, that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Nobody else can be that seed. And, and the denominational churches go to great lengths in order to twist and corrupt all these scriptures to squeeze aliens into the church of God. And the aliens don't belong there because they're not of the seed, period. Christianity is a racist religion, because these promises are only for that one race. No man could ever change that. They could hate us for, for upholding it. But in the end, they hate God. And they're going to be destroyed, hating God. And, and trying to rebuke God. Continuing at Romans. But to that also, which is of the faith of Abraham, I'm back to verse 16. Who is the father of us all, as in Paul said, and we discussed this earlier, in in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, Abraham our forefather, in the oldest manuscripts, not Abraham our father. Paul was speaking to some of the scattered Israelites who who were Romans. And we could establish that in history, in ancient history, and in Paul's epistle. It's all throughout Paul's epistle. They had the truth of God, changed it into a lie. Okay, as it is written, verse 17, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now, Abraham wasn't a father of many nations yet. So Paul writes, Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead, and this is the crucial part, and calls those things which be not as though they were, because those nations didn't yet exist. But Yahweh told Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. At the same time, he told Abraham that his seed would come out of his loins. Who against hope, believed in hope. Why? Because Abraham thought it was incredible that his 90-year-old wife was going to have a son that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So, it's not that many nations were going to become Abraham's seed because they believe in Jesus. That's not it. It's that Abraham's seed became many nations and they are the subject of the new covenant in Jesus. They alone, Israel according to the flesh, those who are Israelites, for whom is the promises and the adoption and, and the commandments and the law and all these other things that pertain only to Israel. That's what Abraham believed, that his seed would come, become many nations. That's the faith of Abraham because that's what Abraham believed. So where Paul mentions the faith of Abraham, it is that to which he refers as he explained it in Romans chapter 4, and there is no other faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham must describe what Abraham believed. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to Genesis, starting in chapter 12, and walk through chapter 17, and and how that promise was passed on to Jacob in chapters 27, 28, 29. That's context, and there's no understanding true Christianity without that context. So what Abraham believed, as Paul also explained there in Romans, is that his own offspring would become many nations, and that those nations would inherit the world. That is the faith of Abraham which Paul spoke in Romans. And that is what Abraham believed, to which Paul refers here in Galatians. The purpose of God is also expressed in Isaiah chapter 27. It's in many other places throughout the prophets. But in Isaiah chapter 27, he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom in bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, Yahweh God, if he could have simply substituted other people for Abraham's seed and spared Sarah the pain of bearing a child at 90 years old, would have just accepted what Abraham said and let Eleazar be his seed, his, his, stu- his steward. If his name is Eleazar, I'm not sure I had that right, but I think it is. It's immaterial. Abraham's steward couldn't be a seed. His seed had to come from his loins in Genesis chapter 17, I think it is, or around there. And the seed has to come from Abraham's loins in Acts chapter 20. And it has to come from Abraham's loins today through Jacob Israel. Or you're not a Christian. You might think you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian according to the word of God or according to the epistles of Paul or according to the faith of Abraham, which is what's paramount to being a Christian.
1: Because and, Christ um, came that, to that fulfill... that prophecy that Abraham would inherit the earth, if you think about it, that that means that the other nations would have to be pushed aside for that prophecy, you know, to uh, be fulfilled, right? I mean, lo- logically, the other... If you understand, of course, that the Adamic race was white, then all by the time of Christ, all the white nations would have to be israelites when you really just think about the prophecy logically right
0: absolutely and and from the prophets as well as from ancient histories because that's how paul did it and from archaeology we can understand that the dominant tribes of the time of christ which were the In in the far west, which were the Phoenicians and and the Proto-Celts, and in the north were the Scythians, and in the east were the Parthians, and in the west were the Dorian and Macedonian Greeks and the Romans. They all came from the ancient children of Israel from a period 1600 to 500 years before Christ. They all descended from the children of Israel. Yeah. Excuse me. So Abraham C did inherit the world by the time of Christ. And and those Germanic tribes and and Mediterranean tribes are, are still dominate the world to this day, politically, militarily. Except that now the Jews, our enemies, and the enemies of Christ have us in a real bind. And that's another thing that Paul explains in Romans chapter 9. If you are, if Paul had prayed for the disbelieving Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he said that not all of those are Israel are of Israel, and went on to compare Jacob and Esau, then he is explaining what we see in the histories of Josephus and and the histories of Strabo of Cappadocia supports it, that many of these people in Judea are Edomites. And that's why they don't believe. Christ told them, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. They're Edomites. That's the only explanation why Paul is making this analogy of Israelites as vessels of mercy and Edomites as vessels of destruction and God-loving Israel and God-hating Esau in Romans chapter 9. So when you want to understand the phenomenon of Jews since the first century and the time of Christ, you have to understand it the way the New Testament writers understood it. As the Apostle John said, they came out from us, but they were not of us and called them Antichrists. The reason why we have Jews is that they are the Edomites of Judea, along with whatever Israelites continued to disbelieve Christ and ultimately mixed in with those Edomites, As Paul expressed fear in Romans chapter 9, that his kinsmen according to the flesh would become accursed if they did not turn to Christ. So the reason we have Jews is that Jews are Edomites. There is no other possible explanation. And these stupid-ass Christians continue to describe Jews as God's chosen people. And that's a lie, because they're God's cursed people. And that's proven in both Old Testament and New. And in our history books.
1: And that happens today, right? People who reject Christ often end up uh, fornicating eventually. Not always, but, you know, they're lying often.
0: That they end up fornicating, they end up apostate, that they go off into perdition, into some sin or another. It, it's only Christ that can spare us from sin. That That's an element of his mercy. Yet, you know, if you go to a modern high school today, and you go through four years of high school, the way things are taught in school today, and the way pop culture, it is... has completely permeated our society. And as corrupt as it is today, if you go to a modern high school and you're a young white man and you come out of that high school and you're not a race mixer and you're not a sodomite, it's only because of the grace of God that you didn't follow after one of those sins. And you should praise God just for that, that he spared you from that disgrace. Because it's a miracle that we have any young, white, straight Christians today. The way society is going, it's absolutely decadent. And it will face, just as Paul lamented his brethren in Romans chapter 9. We should lament ours today. Because they are going to face that same destruction that the Edomites faced in 70 A.D. And if you open the pages of Josephus, if you think that that um, that that this corruption with which the Edomites had spread stopped in in Judea, or, or 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 that it's new today, let me put it that way. If you think it's new today, it's not. Josephus describes entire groups of edomite cross-dressers transvestites men that dressed up as women and went and robbed people josephus describes them i don't remember the exact passage but it's in there somewhere in antiquities books 19 or 20.
1: so, so it this shows tra- you it's genetic doesn't it that wherever jews are that's the inevitable result right
0: It's absolutely the inevitable result because the Edomites are are basically Canaanites. Yes, Esau was the son of Isaac, but Esau took Canaanite wives and then he went and dwelt in Mount Hor. Mount Hor was inhabited with the Horites and he had joined himself to, I believe the man's name was Seir the Horite. So he joined himself to a, to a Canaanite tribe after he took Hittite wives and he mingled with all these Canaanites. So, so these people are all bastards and, and they're all accursed. They're all different branches of the ancient Canaanites. And they are also the authors of Sodom and Gomorrah. They created Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Abraham. And, and today, Tel Aviv is the most sodomy friendly city on earth it's the number one city on the globe if i could call it a globe what with with that that promotes sodomy is tel aviv the Edomite capital in palestine and and new york is probably second maybe it would fight with san francisco or some other notable towns But everywhere we have Jews in America, we have a preponderance of sodomy. They recreate Sodom and Gomorrah. That's their goal, is to recreate that wherever they go. To them, that is liberty. But to Christians, it should be a curse. It's a curse. Therefore, going back to Galatians, I'm going to read the same passage in reference to Galatians chapter three, verses six to eight, the same passage from the Christogenian New Testament, which translates it promptly in order to reflect that understanding of the promises and faith of Abraham. And I will add a few notes for clarification. Just as Abraham had trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, then you know that they from faith meaning the faith which Abraham had, they are sons of Abraham. And the writing, having foreseen that from faith, that same faith of Abraham, Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, announced to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul understood. The promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, as he reflects here, Paul understood that promise to, be, to refer to the same promise to Abraham of the many nations that would come from his seed and not as if it were made to any of the so-called heathen nations from out of which Abraham was called. So now we shall read Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 from the King James Version. And this is all to give us context and and a a foundation upon which we can understand Galatians chapter three, verses 15 through 18. So from the King James, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And and you could take that and cross-reference that to Romans chapter seven, verses one through four. That's where it should be cross-referenced. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, of course, that should be nations, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through what faith? Through the faith of Abraham. If the blessing of Abraham is going to come upon you, then you must be of the faith of Abraham, which means that you must be what Abraham believed. You must be one of those people who came from his seed, from his loins, as Paul described, that the promise to Abraham was according to what was written back there in Romans chapter four. So thy seed shall be. Not so shall be thy seed, like the church understands it, but so thy seed shall be. The Catholic Church takes all of Paul's words in regard to this and tries to reverse the meaning. Just like it reverses the meanings of things Christ said. The Catholic Church teaches that the Jews are not his sheep because they didn't believe him. But that's not what Christ said. Christ said, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. They weren't his sheep in the first place. Paul writes that so thy seed shall be, and and they try to say that so shall be thy seed and and reflect. And, and apply it to a bunch of believers of different races. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, thus thy seed shall be. Meaning that his seed would be the many nations of the promise. Abraham's seed are the Gentiles, the so-called Gentiles. So in the Christogenean New Testament, we translate that last verse, verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, to read in order that the blessing of abraham would come to the nations at the hand of christ Joshua, that we should receive the promise of the spirit through the faith as long as those nations are of the seed of abraham and that's what paul was teaching and that is why he was bringing the gospel to these people and it's further proof of that as we proceed with galatians chapters 3 and 4 so it is not that the blessing is being transferred And neither Paul, the gospel, nor the prophets ever suggested that it would be transferred, that the blessing would be taken from Abraham and given to some other people. It is only saying that through Christ, the blessing which Yahweh promised to the seed of Abraham would come upon the nations which came from Abraham's seed. But only Jacob was accounted worthy, out of all the other descendants of Abraham, as only Jacob inherited those promises. That is consistent with all the statements concerning seed, Israel, and the purpose of the gospel, which we have already cited here from Luke chapter 1. We read this in Genesis chapter 28 from verse 1, and remember that at the end of Genesis chapter 27, Rebecca stated that her heart was troubled for the descendants for for the daughters of heth that if jacob married daughters of the hittites like esau did then her life would be no good her her life would be no good to her if jacob race Nicks like esau did and it wasn't about religion it was certainly about race because the daughters of Heth were pagans, but the kindred of Jacob, Abraham, and Isaac that were in Pedanaram were also pagans. However, this group of pagans in Canaan were all corrupt bastards, and that group of pagans in, in Haran were still Adamic and white. That's the difference. In fact, Laban, the name itself, means white, which probably is a lesson that we should learn. So, we read this in Genesis chapter 28. And Isaac, because of what Rebekah said, And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And that's why Esau really lost his birthright. As Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12, that he was a fornicator. Arise, verse two, Genesis twenty-eight. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy father's, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And because he would go and take a wife of his own race, we read in verse three, and God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful. And multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham, to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. So understanding this, we now have a basis for a proper understanding of Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18 which we shall read first from the King James Version. And it says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed. And the King James tried to twist this language. They added a lot of words in italics to try to make like this is a reference to the new covenant, but it's not. It's not at all. Paul is just making an example in reference to the covenants of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ, and we have serious problems with that translation, as we shall explain. But in verse 17, and I say this, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And of course, the analogy Paul is really making is that you still have to be a descendant of Abraham. Because you have to be the subject of those promises made to Abraham. Which are only to his seed. But the inheritance isn't by the law. I'm sorry. But the inheritance isn't by the law. Because mere keeping of the law doesn't assure you a place in the promise. Only being of the seed of Abraham through Jacob assures you the promise. As Paul said in Romans chapter four, the promise is certain to all the seed. So in Romans chapter four, Paul was speaking of the same subject from, but from a different perspective, that the inheritance was not through the keeping of the law. In Galatians, Paul was addressing Judaizers, men who tried to compel Christians to be circumcised and keep the other rituals of the law of Moses, which Paul had taught were done away with in Christ. But that does not mean that non-Israelites may be Christians. Rather, it only means that Israelites who had been under the law, were now redeemed from the law so that they could be reconciled to Yahweh, their God, through Christ. Paul explained that same thing in another different way in Romans chapter 7. So we shall read Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, one verse at a time from the Christian New Testament, and offer our own interpretation galatians chapter 3 15 brethren i speak as befits a man even a validated covenant of man no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself which is only a fuller translation of the the original verb as paul wrote in romans chapter 15 he said, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. The same thing we see expressed several times out of the mouth of Mary, out of the mouth of Zecharias, in Luke chapter one. Here in Galatians three fifteen, he explains that the covenant cannot be changed as even the covenants of men cannot be changed. So, when we interpret the provisions of the new covenant, we must interpret it according to the promises in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, without trying to change any of it. So, in relation to that, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring, or seed. It does not say, and to offsprings as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed, not which is Christ. Christ is not the only seed of the promise. The seed of the promises are the collective children of Israel, as we have already demonstrated here from certain passages of scripture, and we could supply many other passages of scripture probably a hundred, in order to further substantiate that. Here in this verse, Galatians 3.16, Paul contrasts spermati, the dative singular of sperma, with its dative plural, spermacin. Thayer says of sperma that the singular is used collectively of the grains or kernels sown, although later in his definition... Thayer claims that this is not so here in this passage, so he's saying that Paul defies grammar, and he perverts Paul's use of the word here, and he calls it genius in defense of the King James Version translation. So Thayer chose to claim that Paul defied grammar and flattered Paul by calling him a genius for doing it. But that's not necessarily true. That's Thayer's claim because Thayer chose to defend the King James Version translation, which defies the grammar. Paul's not defying the grammar. The King James Version is defying the grammar. The Judeo Christian understanding is in defiance of Paul's grammar. But Paul didn't defy the grammar. That's Thayer's claim, but it's not necessarily true simply because Thayer wants to interpret it in that manner, to make believe Paul defied the grammar. So Thayer is blaming the Judeo-Christian error and heresy on Paul. But I wouldn't blame Paul for anything. I would rather just understand what Paul wrote. We must reject thayer's hyperbole in the context of this and others of paul's epistles we must read this as a comparison especially in the light of romans chapter 9 we must read this as a comparison of the several races which sprung from abraham jacob israel with ishmael which paul also compares in in galatians chapter 4 with Isaridam, the Edomites, of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and even those from Keturah, the sons of Keturah mentioned in Genesis chapter 25. The word seed, as it is in English, also in Greek and in Hebrew, is used, is a singular noun used collectively of many of a single type. The Greek plural of sperma appears in the New Testament only in Matthew chapter 13, verse 32, and Mark chapter 4, verse 31, where diverse types of seed are described, where, it, where the word refers to diverse types of seed. This is true in the Old Testament Hebrew also, where Zerah, the word for seed only occurs in the plural one time in First Samuel chapter eight, verse 15, where it is used of crops and diverse varieties of crops are implied. So our interpretation of this passage is according to the natural use of the word and not contrary to its natural use. The King James version defies in its understanding of this passage and in the judeo-christian interpretation of this passage they defy the grammar and then they blame it on paul paul did not we cannot assume he just defied the grammar because the word sperma may also be translated as race as liddell and scott explain in their definition of sperma the greek word Then in all fairness, we may have done better to translate Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his race. It does not say, and to races, as of many, but as of one, and to your race, which is anointed. Ultimately, Abraham's other sons did not keep their race pure. Not the Ishmaelites, not the Edomites, not the sons of Keturah. They all became known as Arabs, which is mixed. They joined themselves to other races. So in our opinion, Galatians 3.16 is an exceptional example of the method of most Bible, mainstream Bible translators and commentators who first make up their minds what the Bible says And then, after they make up their minds, they twist the meanings and grammar of the Greek words to agree with their conclusions. But their conclusions are made before they try to understand what the Greek really means. They make their conclusions, and then they twist the meanings of the Greek. Right here in Galatians 3.16, that's exactly what they do. Here we also see that the word anointed, which is Christos, and here it refers to the one line of Abraham's offspring, which was anointed, as compared to the other lines of Abraham's offspring. The denominational commentators try to say that this compares all of Abraham's descendants to Christ alone, but that is not the context of the balance of Paul's statements here. Throughout Paul's epistles, In Romans chapters 4 and 8, and later in Galatians chapter 3, and in Hebrews chapters 1, 6, and 11, the heirs of the promises are always a plurality of people and never just Christ himself. And those who are described as the heirs are always designated heirs according to the promise. So Paul said in Romans chapter 14, for if they which are of the law be heirs, Faith is made void, and the promises made of no effect, and for the promise to have effect. Then it must be for all of the children of Israel who were promised according to the promises, which is what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had believed. Wow. This is long, but this is principle. And the principles of the Judeo-Christian churches are all wrong. I don't know if you – before I conclude my my discussion of Galatians 3.16, it's been a while. I don't want to cut you out of this program. If you have anything to add, please speak up.
1: Yeah, uh, Paul goes to great lengths to really show that nobody can be squeezed into this promise, right? He he mentions every possible way, every descendant of Abraham, you know, sure, none of them uh, – even it has to be through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And even uh, even against infiltrators like Edomites trying to sneak in every possible way, he makes it clear that it can only be Israelites. Right. And and as you said, every denomination, you know, denomination of Christianity, they already have their faults and their beliefs already formed before they believe the Bible. and, And that's why they're always blind to this.
0: Absolutely. That's why we have so many divisions and so much heresy. in in the world because they that they will fight and stand by their their denominational beliefs and and this schism had 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 occurred in the second century that this what what the judeo christians believe is generally called replacement theology what where um the jews didn't believe jesus so god dumped the jews even though they still call the Jews God's chosen people, they teach that God jumped, dumped the Jews because of their disbelief and sort of adopted all anybody who would believe Jesus as Israel. And they became the new Israel. And this lie, it's a lie. It's totally contrary to everything Paul of Tarsus actually taught. And... It had its earliest manifestation in Justin Martyr, who was from the second, from the middle of the second century, from about 160, 165 AD, and not much of his work survives. I wish more of it survived, but Justin Martyr believed in replacement theology, that Christians who believed Jesus were now Israel and that the actual physical genetic Israelites were cast aside and replaced with Christians who believed Jesus. And that's simply not true. But there's another little understood fact about Justin Martyr, is that he was a Samaritan who learned his Christianity from Judeans, and they all rejected Paul of Tarsus. Rejecting Paul of Tarsus, they really didn't have a clue as to the purpose of of the gospel and the purpose of Paul's ministry in bringing the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel for whom Christ had come, where Peter and John and, and even James, although some dispute this, all are in agreement with Paul on that issue and so is Jude, and so is the Revelation, and so are the prophets, and so are many statements in the Gospels themselves. In spite of that, rejecting Paul, they were able to contrive this replacement theology, and it was replacement theology that was adopted later. The re- the same concept that we see in Justin Martyr was adopted by Clement of Alexandria and Origen and Eusebius and the whole succession of, of the Christians, many of whom were converted Jews, in Alexandria, which were originally Gnostics. That they, they, that they weren't, I mean, Clement of Alexandria was originally a Gnostic and he never shed his Gnostic ideas permeate his, his commentaries on scripture. So that is a, a poison which took root in the second century as original apostolic Christianity was being persecuted out of existence. These Judeans or Jews, maybe I should call them, had, had concocted this replacement theology in its place. So that's a corruption of Christianity that was a result of the persecutions. But Christ foresaw this. Yahweh God foresaw this, that it would happen. It's our duty and obligation in the last days to, as Christ had said, return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of their children of the children to their fathers which is Christian identity, which is a return to true apostolic Christianity, believing what Paul said and proving it through history. That's Christian identity. We take what Paul said, we believe it, and we prove it through history and through the prophets. And and then many of the meanings of the words of Christ are also revealed. Like, I have come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, in the historical context of first century Judea, the reason for what Paul said in verse 16 comes to light once it is realized that according to the testimony of Josephus, Strabo, and Paul himself, Romans chapters 9 to 11, many of the Judeans are actually Edomites and not Israelites, and that the preponderance of the rulers were Edomites, For that same reason, in Romans chapter 9, Paul had said that not all of those in Israel were Israelites, and he went on to label the Edomites as vessels of destruction and the Israelites as vessels of mercy. But because the Edomites, along with many Israelites who rejected Christ under their leadership, were baptized in pretending to keep the law and teaching Christians to keep the law. Paul next wrote in verse 17, Now this I say, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh. The law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate by which the promise, the promises of those first covenant, that first covenant Yahweh made with Abraham back in when, when he passed through the parts of the divided animal in I believe it was Genesis chapter 15 when Yahweh did that. That's the covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, which validated the promises, the unconditional promises which Yahweh gave to Abraham. The law which arrived 430 years after does not invalidate by which the promise is left idle. In other words, the old covenant, at Sinai was made 430 years after the promises made to Abraham. So just because the Israelites failed to keep the old covenant, that does not mean that the promise to Abraham is invalidated. Yahweh God made the promises to Abraham unconditionally without the law. So they must be kept without the law in spite of the fact that the children of Israel were later given the law at Sinai and did not keep it. So the old covenant failed because of the sin of the children of Israel. And a new covenant was promised, which was separate from the old, which was not made after the same manner as the old, as Yahweh God himself had attested in Jeremiah chapter 31. The new covenant was made on the basis of the promises to Abraham, Because Yahweh God keeps his promises, even though men cannot keep their own. For that reason, Paul concludes in Galatians 3.18, For if from law the inheritance is no longer from promise, but to Abraham through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. In other words, the inheritance is not from the law. If it were, then it couldn't be from the promise. But Paul is asserting that it is from the promise. And it was given freely, meaning that Abraham didn't have to do anything for his seed to become many nations and inherit the earth. Nothing was required of Abraham. Everything was required of God. he It's up to him to make sure that that promise is fulfilled to this very day. So Yahshua Christ may indeed be the heir of all things, yet his very purpose is for the children of Israel, for his elect. This is a matter of prophecy all throughout those last 25 chapters of Isaiah, especially Isaiah's chapter, Isaiah chapters 43, 44 and 53. Joshua Christ is not the only legitimate heir of the promises to the fathers. Rather. Yahshua Christ is the God who made those promises to the fathers. He's not the heir of promises to himself. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 10 through 15, for example, it is evident that the promise was handed down from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob, once again, and his descendants, and that these are the heirs of the promise is made clear by Paul in Hebrews chapter 6. Where he said, For when God made the promise to Abraham, this is the King James Version, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, the plural, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The hope set before us that we are the heirs, not Christ alone, the heirs of the promise. Paul used that word in the plural. Then in Hebrews chapter 9, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, he spoke the same way to the Hebrews, who were the actual Israelites in Judea, he spoke the same way to them that he did to the Romans and the Galatians because they were all Israelites. They which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So they are the heirs of the promise. Those who were being redeemed from the transgressions which were under the old covenant. So if you weren't under the old covenant, you don't belong in the new Redemption isn't for you. To be redeemed, one must be a transgressor under the First Testament. And that can only apply to the Israelites of the Old Covenant. In Romans 4.16, Paul states that from faith, referring to the faith which Abraham had, the promise is certain to all of the offspring or seed. So we must understand Galatians three fifteen 15 through 18 in context with these other statements. So here in Galatians chapter 3, Paul explained that the heirs of the promise are the, are the anointed seed, the children of Israel, and not the children of Abraham's other offspring. Abraham, Abraham's other offspring, says this, Ishmael, or the sons of Keturah, nor especially those of Esau, just because they may pretend to keep the law. And and that's the original context of this, that the promise isn't from the law. It's from, that the promise is from the faith of Abraham. And that promise was carried down through Isaac and Jacob. This is a recurring theme in Paul's letters, as we have seen in Romans chapter 9, and we'll find again in Galatians chapter 4, where Paul makes an allegory which recalls the exclusion of Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman. Ultimately, Esau and Ishmael were, re- were treated in this manner because they both took wives of the Canaanites, having children of mixed race, who are void of that spirit with which the children of Adam alone are endowed. And it was preserved through the law, through the children of Jacob, through the children of Israel. But that doesn't mean that the inheritance is from the law. The inheritance is from that promise. The inheritance is a racial inheritance. The law is only a means of maintaining the race. I think that's all I have to say this evening. I don't know if you have anything to add.
1: Yeah, that Abraham's promise was gonna be fulfilled no matter what, right? And also the the Genesis one that uh you know to cling to the uh the exact verse jumps me that he had to cling to the tree of life for eternal life, right? That it would happen, that Abraham would uh sorry, the descendants of Adam would reach the finish line, you know, when christ returns but christ came back to make sure that only the ones who kept his law would be the ones who made it to that finish line if that makes sense
0: absolutely that
1: That, that's that's the the way he wanted it
0: yes that is the greater context there were promises to the entire adamic race and even though they were narrowed down because all of the other descendants of noah went and adam went off into sin Those promises were narrowed down to Abraham and were assured in him. So when Christ came to redeem Israel, he was also fulfilling that original promise to Adam in Genesis, I think it's 328, that unless a man cling to the tree of life and and grasp the tree of life and have eternal life. So that doesn't exclude the rest of the race of Adam from that Genesis 3.28 promise. And Paul explains that. He explains it in Romans chapter 5. He explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in relation to the rest of the race of Adam. But the scope and focus of the scripture is on the promises to Abraham in this world and, and we abide by this. And it, it was never taken away It was never changed. These promises can't be taken away from Abraham. And these promises can't be corrupted to mean something other than what Abraham believed. Everybody who does so attempts to steal from God, as you said an hour ago. (laughs) They're attempting to steal from God.
1: And it really adds context to when Christ says, uh, you know, the narrow path absolutely you know from adam all the way to the end is just the the lion of israel or you keep the law eventually right right at the end
0: yes sir and if you're not an israelite in the end it doesn't matter for you but you don't know it you'll never know it you'll only know it if you are an israelite if i die and i was a bastard it i'll never know it how would i know it i'm dead if I don't have that spirit, how would I know it? I'm dead. It don't matter. But if I am a child of Israel, as we believe that most white Europeans are, then we'll learn this lesson not not to mix our race, not to rebel against God as our ancient ancestors rebelled against God and many other re- lessons that that are um instrumental for us to learn as christians such as the fact that only our god can be our king and and we should never look to man for laws or or for salvation so i i could ramble on here forever but it's getting late and and i want to thank you once again for being here and and for um tolerating my digressions and praise yahweh
1: no, always a pleasure, Bill. I really enjoy these, and I hope it helps people come to that Elijah spirit, right, the, the last ministry. But um, yeah, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people, and not any other people. Thank you, Bill.
0: Praise Yahweh. Good night.